donation at kpfa.org. And thank you for your support. And this is 94.1 FM, KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. Your picture drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, uh, today is the 25th of February. 2014, and two days from now, on Friday, no, Thursday, February 27th, I plan to watch cable television's History Channel because the second season of The Vikings is beginning. Now, uh, I just dread the commercials. I've never watch stuff with commercials and I, I've got to try to hang on until the uh, show comes up on demand that'll be just a few days uh, on the other hand uh, I can't curb my enthusiasm I, I think I'll probably watch it and then try to just turn the sound off for the commercials anyway uh, what I'm trying to express is my childish enthusiasm for this show, uh, I'm really hooked on this series. I watched the nine episodes of season one. Uh, I watched them all together for the second time last weekend, just to be sure that this is as good as I thought it was at first. Voila! Now, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't had so much fun uh, since the BBC's 23-hour series Rome, it's my favorite in the last few years, you know. That one was about the age of Julius Caesar and his successor, Caesar Augustus. Uh, I'm a pushover for historical fiction, even when uh, I argue with the interpretations, you know, the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts, anyway. <laughs> Who knows what really went down back in uh, 52 B.C. Uh, I always think of Thornton Wilder's wonderful little novel, The Ides of March. You know, it was about all the backstage scandals, Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, that kind of thing. Anyway, I just figure that reality or history is just a nice framework to uh, set things, set the stage for uh, so many 
terrific stories and plots, but historians, scholars, people who know their history uh, are not always happy when it gets a new spin. Uh, I'm still fascinated with the notion that Cleopatra's uh, son, Caesarian, might have survived. There might be descendants of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. Anyway, in the Vikings, this terrific new series, I was hooked. I was hooked uh, after the first battle scene. It's in episode one, a spectral uh, hand uh, presence, Odin, the Norse god. There's Zeus, I think. Odin's hand reaches down through the clouds and lifts the spirit or the soul of a warrior or several warriors up into Valhalla, where, of course, the uh, the warrior will feast with all the gods. Now, Norse mythology is awesome. I I think for me it's right up there with Celtic legends and uh, pagan myths. By episode 8, uh, we see what uh, the screenwriter has decided are pagan religious rites. I won't tell you the story. I promise, I promise, I don't want to be a spoiler. Uh, this show has more surprises, more ironic turns than any historical tale I've ever seen on TV. Uh, the White Queen is is a close second, but uh, uh, I have little little trouble with the White Queen, but that's because I'm a stickler for Shakespeare's interpretations. The White Queen, of course, is the one which rehabilitates Richard III, his bones recently discovered, you know. And in this new interpretation or story, Richard III is seen as a nice guy and also a very beautiful, handsome man, not a hunchback. Never mind, I digress. Now, uh, in the Vikings, there's only few characters that seem to be uh, historical or um, I think there was, yes, the king of Denmark, uh, king of Northumbria, we're talking 792, 93, 94, right in there. Uh, 8th century. It's pretty confusing, and not everyone wants to take time to look up all these, uh, <laughs> all these folks. And the spellings, of course, will drive you crazy. You don't need to know uh, all the exact historical details. Uh, the generalities are clear social structures, tribal, or early feudal arrangements, you know. Pagan culture and religious beliefs and customs, all the trappings of that age, just fascinating. Uh, the writer takes a captive Christian priest and puts him into the story in the first episode. That way, throughout the first season... The young, uh, not naive, but the, the young Christian priest is there to provide a Christian perspective or point of view. Uh, you know, uh, actually the priest has been to Francia or France, so he's pretty sophisticated, at least as far as his Christianity goes. Uh, now, the writer, Michael Hurst, 
number one genius, H-I-R-S-T, Michael Hurst, tempted to write him a fan letter. Anyway, he can uh, show, illustrate all those parallels between pagan beliefs and Christian uh, faith, you know. <laughs> At some point, I remember... The main central character says the gods will provide, and the priest kind of perks up and looks at him and says, oh, yeah, right. Anyway, uh, also certain kinds of sacrifice uh, appall the priest, and then it's pointed out to him that uh, Jesus Christ is being tortured on the cross. Anyway, uh, the Norse legends of Scandinavia are a lot more colorful than the Christian stories. Uh <laughs> When they sit around the fire to tell the story, the creation myths, the women kind of, uh, what is the word, uh, upstage the priest. They, they tell their creation legends and then they ask the priest what he's got to share. Uh, <laughs> anyway, creation myths are pretty universal. When, uh, when the priest really thinks they're becoming, well, he, he sees the barbaric rituals, and uh, <laughs> he, what is it, he finally gets his comeuppance when he realizes the, uh, what is it called, the, uh, the atrocities committed by the king of Northumbria, you know, all that stuff. All the same, human nature in every age, in every tribe. Uh, anyway, I promised I won't tell, so... Uh, I hesitate to recommend the Vikings to young people, to school teachers. I, I don't know. There's a warning on the screen, of course, before this show starts. And, uh, it says, you know, might not be right for young children, sex and violence and all that. But I think today's adolescents, maybe not the young children, but today's adolescents, have been exposed to so much TV violence. I, I hardly think this show is offensive. Uh, sex seems to offend more people than violence. Uh, and the so-called sex in this show is pretty down to earth. It's a wonderful character called Floki. He's the, uh, the screwball, but not, uh, he and his uh, lady Helga are the uh, the most fun, the most fun, and uh, <laughs> uh, they what is it? They're hippies, right? The family that is the center of the plot contains a young boy. There's a boy and a girl, two children, and the boy's world view or his his pagan Scandinavian view is very sophisticated. At least he's realistic. You know, he looks at the priest and makes the priest face what's going down. Uh, the children know their ancient uh, legends and they listen to the tales. Uh, tales of Ragnarok, my favorite uh, you know, if you're a fan of Wagner, you know all about Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. It compares to the Christian apocalypse, you know, revelations, the death of the world, death of all the gods. 
uh, you know, the last days. Uh, in this interpretation of pagan or uh, Scandinavian ancient religions, the women are included. Uh, there's one very tall, seven foot tall. No, no, don't tell the story, but... <laughs> She is a kind of priest, you will see. And there are lots of women warriors. They are called shield maidens. One of them goes on a raiding party up the Thames, spelled a little bit differently, but up to Northumbria. You remember the Viking raids. They got all the way down to Sicily, I'm told, after a few uh a few generations, uh, some people say that those blondes down in Sicily are descendants of the ancient Vikings. Uh, anyway, in this story, we're in the 8th century, and they're just beginning to try to go west. And, uh, of course, it requires these great ships. The character Floki is very, very clever. He, he makes... Um, I don't know what you call it. Uh, he makes ships that have flexibility. There's a tree, an ash tree in this show that I, I can't, I can't believe that it's real. You know, it's a tree. We see the base of it. It's <laughs> as big as a house and then some, uh, breathtaking views of nature. Uh, I don't know where they, they took these films. Uh, those fjords, those are the real thing. And the ships, sets, costumes. For me, it was time travel. Uh, actually, I think I'm going to watch it again. Uh, the first season all over again. I know that uh, filmmakers just can't resist making the past more beautiful than it could ever have been. But... I think beauty can be part of truth, at least in storytelling, uh, at least for an artist. I don't know when reality came to be so desirable in stories and films. Uh, I prefer great acts of the imagination. Anyway, these filmmakers get my vote. These are the great artists of the 21st century. I know so many people would argue and say that painting and music and all those things are singular arts, but I think when you put them all together, you've got the 21st century. Uh, music's terrific here. I, I'd watch the Vikings just to look at the jewelry, the uh, wearable art. The wooden, wooden uh, icons, uh, statues, figures of the gods. The tattoo work is enough to delight young people in today's world. The central character, Ragnar Rothbrook, is pretty unique. He's uh, fierce, and I think he's probably too smart for his own good. He has all the makings of a real tragic hero. You know, he's super warrior, super everything. But the tragic flaw is not quite evident yet. There is a, 
a character in uh, the first season. He's the local headman. He's called an earl. You know, there's only one earl in <laughs> in the community. Uh, the character of Earl Harold Haraldson is played by Gabriel Byrne, one of my favorite Irish actors. That's Gabriel Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. You would recognize him if you saw him. He's in everything. Uh, he's a, in this show. He's a paradigm for the gloomy Swede. We all know the legend of gloomy Swedes. Think of Engmar Bergman. Uh, Let's see, other Scandinavians, that would be Henrik Ibsen, that's Norway. Anyway, all my favorite uh, Scandinavian sagas seem to enter into this uh, show. Now, you remember Sigrid Unset, a Nobel Prize winning writer, Norway, she's from Norway. Uh, I think she came here uh, in the, well, she... She came to America in the 40s during the Second World War, but her books, the Nobel Prize uh, winning book 1928, written in the 20th century, early on, let's call it 1920, she sets her stories in a Christian Norway in the 14th century, I think a little bit into the 15th. The... uh Favorite for most people is Kirsten Lavren's daughter. Uh, that one's been made into a movie, a disappointing movie where I'm concerned, much too mild. Um, just one scene in the movie Kirsten Lavren's daughter, we see a young woman snatched out of a convent. She's been given away in marriage, and the much older <laughs> lord or... Uh, rich guy, picks her up off the ground like a sack of grain, throws her over the saddle. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think the uh, the novel that won the Nobel Prize for Sigrid Unset was called The Master of Hestviken. I think I'm ready to read it again. I've read it twice, and it's still just, what is it? Uh, I, I think maybe... It hasn't gotten the same attention that we give our great Victorian novels because, of course, it had to be translated. The Master of Hestviken is uh, right up there with my favorite 19th century masterpieces. Uh, talk about talk about a lifetime of angst and sorrow. Uh, I just love that uh, that. Uh, Book. I think, now I think that the Vikings is probably, probably only good for maybe three seasons. I don't know how they can do much more with it. Uh, maybe they can come up with more plot, but, uh, I've noticed that, uh, even the best series just can't do more than about, oh, let's say three seasons before we get, if not repetition, at least, you know, the same, the same character, same, the same tone or style. Yes, it's the style. And it's amazing how difficult it is to maintain a style. Think of all our great filmmakers, uh, 
and how they invariably get tiring. Think of dear Woody Allen. <laughs> you know, seems to me that for the last 10 or 15 years, all his movies are the same movie. But that's just because uh, I guess I'm over, but over, I'm saturated with that stuff. Uh, I want to jump here into uh, this terrific book of my own, all about all about movies and about how the films have become the great art of the 21st century. Uh, I'm not sure most people would agree with me. Uh, one friend was upset with me when I said that there might be more love, more emotional food in the movies than there was in print. Now, of course, that's not true. Words stay warmer longer. <laughs> I spent the last week trying to reread some Victorian novels and even a few that I hadn't got around to. And Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfeld Hall, which I started when I was young and never finished. And Villette, uh, Charlotte Bronte's Villette. I think I read it when I was young, but it went right past me. Uh, I don't recommend either one of them unless you are an addict. Uh, I, I just can't decide whether we should move on and find new, uh, new treasures or whether we should go back. I, I get the feeling that I should really reread most of the books that impacted me as a young person, just to see how they, what is it, how they read now. <laughs> yes. What you see or read when you're 18 is entirely different than what you read at 80. Anyway, uh, let's see. Here's this wonderful essay about uh, whether or not the movies are an improvement over the great books of the past. Once upon a time, I used to ask new acquaintances to tell me their three favorite myths or fairy tales, gave me a key to their personal mythologies. Uh, now, today, I probably would ask them for their three favorite films. That's a clue. My father's films were The Informer, 1935, Odd Man Out, 1947, you remember James Mason as the Irish uh, IRS hero. <laughs> you remember he's dying all the way through and people just pass him around. One fellow wants to paint him and another fellow wants to save him, that kind of thing. And, uh, see, his third film was The Third Man, 1949. My older sister liked... Uh, Black Narcissus, that's one of those Powell Pressburger uh, films, all just sensuality and color, 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 1946. She also liked Portrait of Jenny, 1948, Jennifer Jones and Joseph Cotton, yes, mystery, mystery of time, loss. And let's see, she liked a movie called Gone to Earth, 1951. They changed the title. Uh, the little novel was called Gone to Earth. And I think the movie here in the U.S. of A. 
was the wild one. Confuse it with the uh, Marlon Brando picture. Anyway, it was about uh, Jennifer Jones as a Celtic witch. Loved that movie. I gotta find it, see it again. Once again, a Powell Pressburger movie. Uh, she dies, Jennifer Jones dies, trying to save a fox from the hounds. Got it? <laughs> anyway, my mother didn't go to the movies much. She couldn't smoke in them, you know. But she kind of liked Garbo pictures. She didn't care for Wuthering Heights, you know, the one with Laurence Olivier. Because, you know, it was such a flimsy effort, she said. She left out half the book, you know, the second half, where everything changes and transmutes and the next generation is sensible and cool and not neurotic. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, if my mother had lived, she might have come to see uh, that old film as a classic. Most people do. Uh, you know, it has all of that Byronic, romantic nonsense, which, of course, was not, not Emily Bronte's intention at all. <laughs> you know, Jane Eyre, the uh, uh, book by Charlotte Bronte, has completely transmogrified several times uh, the big romantic Flair of the 1940s is gone, and now it's a nice, tough little film, mostly about how Victorian women coped with the men of their age. Uh, anyway, you remember years ago, Marshall McLuhan wrote that movies have turned us into a tribal people again, you know, not very literate, uh, tribal in the sense of Homeric, you know. Uh, the Homeric age, people went to the theater the way we go to football games, you know, or rock concerts, I think. Uh, tribal people are moved by song and dance and, you know, those emotive forces in the drama, ritual. Literary people are moved by words. They are, uh, what is that? They are individuals. We read a book alone. Uh, theater, of course, is a group, group activity. Uh, now, I'm not sure. There's a lot of nonsense talk today about how literary people are susceptible to propaganda. I think the best propaganda is visual. We know that. Tribal people are persuaded by the rock music they are is the word stained, stained with the uh, society around them. Uh, McLuhan told us literate people were self-conscious. That is, they could hold their liquor. Whereas the tribal people get drunk. They have a wonderful orgy. Uh, in the Vikings, you will see an orgy to end all orgies. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm interested in the prosaic notion that film, like literature, is, first of all, an historical document. It tells the truth of its time. You know, this, the way that Aristophanes' plays told the truth of his time. Remember Lillian Gish telling us that uh, 
the talkies, the talkies, transformed films. She said that they were spiritual, more like music, when they were silent. Uh, now, I have five pages more of this nonsense. I do believe it all, but it's harder and harder to talk about, uh, what is that? talk about our myths and legends because they're most of them they're most of them made up of images one three minute video can give us a whole a whole lifetime uh, a society in in a capsule in a little moment uh, language on the other hand is the path to conscious consciousness you know I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Have you been looking to tell your stories on KPFA and create a space for your community to tell theirs? Then check out First Voice Media's apprenticeship program based on community building, a collaborative work environment, and passing on our skills and stories. We're looking for the next wave of unique voices to bring fresh perspective and the diversity that gives us strength. Here at the First Voice Media apprenticeship program, we focus on bringing women, people of color, and underrepresented groups into media production, providing a comprehensive broadcast, technical, and administrative skill training in radio. For more information, Go to kpfaapprentice.org or call 510-848-6767, extension 235. The application deadline is March 14th, so check it out and get ready to use your voice.